Linkerd is a service mesh that runs efficiently with a low memory footprint and low latency. We've covered the details of Linkerd in previous episodes. Buoyant is the company that sells Linkerd as a service, and today's show focuses on the engineering details of the company and how Linkerd is architected in 2022. William Morgan is the CEO of Buoyant, and he joins the show to talk in detail about running a leading service mesh company. If you're interested in sponsoring Software Engineering Daily, we reach over 250,000 engineers monthly. Send me an email, sponsor at softwareengineeringdaily.com if you're interested. William, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's great to be back. The platform of Linkerd is something we've explored a lot in previous episodes, of course. And last time you and I spoke, it was nice to hear that there's been a large growth in traction for the company. And the first thing I wanted to ask is, has there been any significant change to the technology of Linkerd and Buoyant? Or has there just been a broader acceptance that a service mesh is something that is desirable for the majority of companies? Yeah, no, the technology has not really changed. I mean, we've added more features, we've made it more powerful. We continue to expand the set of capabilities that, that Linkerd has, but the core technology remains the same. And we got a chance to do it the right way when, when we did Linkerd 2.x and that those choices on the tech side have, have held strong over the past couple of years. But there has been a big change. I'll, I'll say there has been a big change in, in the sorts of people who are coming to Linkerd and, and kind of the audience, at least that, that we've seen. What is that difference in user base? Well, I, I forget when you and I last spoke. It's probably a good 18 months ago. I think it's been a while. Yeah. But for a very long time, the audience coming into Linkerd were people very enthusiastic about the technology, people who were really excited about Kubernetes, who were excited about service meshes, who were excited to get their hands dirty, you know, and and were adept often at, at deploying and operating open source projects. And that's great, you know, <laughs> that was wonderful. But over the past six to 12 months, we've seen people come in who are much less excited about the technology for its own sake and much more in the camp of, I believe in the value prop and I want a service mesh. I don't actually care that much about the details. I don't actually want it to be exciting and interesting to operate. I kind of want it to just work and for me not to have to think about it. And it's been a pretty dramatic difference in those two, in in, in that shift in audience. Mm. And with that change in in user base, are there feature requests? Are there like differences in in what these newer companies actually need out of a service mesh or is it kind of the just the same monitoring and rate limiting and same features that they're looking for that's a really good question i don't think it's really a dramatic change in the types of features they want but it's certainly the ways that they're using linkerd is different the early adopters were very kubernetes centric and you could kind of get by and say, hey, look, this thing works on Kubernetes. And if you're not using Kubernetes, I'm like, it's not going to work. And that was okay. The folks who are coming into it today often have Kubernetes running alongside other environments. And so we've seen a lot of interest in the ability to run the Linkerd's data plane outside of Kubernetes. And that's something that we're starting to really sink our teeth into. It's non-trivial for, for a couple of reasons. 
less on the proxy side and more on the kind of overall system side. But that's been a big change. Now, when you say data plane, are you talking about the path that the data takes from individual service or container instances and wherever that data is being stored, like a database for for Buoyant to retrieve from? Yeah. So, you know, let's maybe we'll give the listeners a, a brief review of the service mesh in case they haven't had this drilled into their head a million times a day as, as I have. But the way a service mesh works is you've got a control plane and you've got a data plane. And the data plane are these tiny little proxies that sit next to every service in your Kubernetes cluster in, in the form of a sidecar container. And they intercept the calls, the network calls to and from each of those services. And the control plane is some machinery that just sits off to the side and kind of helps you coordinate the data plane as a whole. And so that model gives you the ability to do all sorts of features without the application really having to be aware of that of it. So far, for Linkerd at least, we've been very Kubernetes focused. So we've kept that the way you deploy the data plane. Well, you do it as a pod, you do it as a container in a pod, and like you know, and and it, it works really easily on Kubernetes and doesn't work anywhere else. To get to the the feature we're calling mesh expansion. We need you to have the ability to spin up the proxy, so not the control plane, but the core data plane proxy itself, somewhere outside of Kubernetes, and have it connect to a control plane in a way that makes sense, in a way that propagates identity, in a way that allows you to do MTLS and kind of all the other fun features that Linkerd has. So that's what we're starting to dig dig into. So how does a service mesh fit into an engineer's day-to-day life? Is it something that I'm consulting to just look at overall service health, or am I typically waiting for it to alert me that something is wrong? Am I using it to define certain service level objectives? Give me an idea of how, from what you've seen from users, how a service mesh fits into somebody's average day. Yeah, so I think it depends on what type of engineer you are. So if you are a developer and you're writing code and your job is to build the business logic that's powering your organization, then ideally you actually don't interact with the service mesh at all or or, or not directly. And the, the goal, at least in my mind, the goal of something like Linkerd is to make it so that developers are, are blissfully unaware of kind of the platform features. Now, on the other hand, if you are an SRE, or if you are on the platform team and you are someone who's tasked with building the platform on which the application runs, right? And that platform could include Kubernetes, it could include Linkerd, it could include CI, CD, it could include some a code repository or code hosting model. Then your interaction with the service mesh is pretty direct, right? Because now it's one of those platform features that you're building. And in that case, you know, there's, there's a couple ways, you know, that, that you'd interact with it. One, as you point out, is with metrics. So the way Linkerd works is with those proxies sitting next to every application, every network call kind of transparently going through those proxies, Linkerd has a wealth of information about not just the, the state of the network, but the state of the applications. Linkerd understands HTTP, understands gRPC. It can tell you whether you're getting successful responses or not. You can feed all those metrics into some kind of monitoring and alerting system. And crucially, you can do that in a way that's consistent across all of your applications. So it doesn't matter what language they're written in. It doesn't require any particular libraries to be in, in, instrumented. 
and in a way that it gives you a uniform set of metrics. Now, I can't look inside the application. I can't tell you kind of the internals, but I can tell you, here's the success rate. Here's the response latency. Here's the request volume. Here's how they're changing over time. So that's one big way. Another big way that you would interact with it is on the control side. So this would be things like, well, retries and timeouts and load balancing and circuit breaking and things like that. So here's features where I, as a platform owner, are maybe adding some configuration to Linkerd to say, hey, for this service, I actually want you, when calls happen, I want them to, to go in this, in this particular way, right? And so because I know this is a flaky application or, or, or whatever it is. And then the, the third kind of primary way uh, is from the security perspective, you know, where you as either a security engineer or just a, a security conscious engineer are using Linkerd to do things like do mutual TLS between all the pods in your cluster or to instrument policy and say only these services are allowed to talk to these other services. So if you're on the platform side and you fall into one of those categories, you're often interacting with the service mesh pretty directly. If you're on the developer side, hopefully, you know, you read a blog post about it and, and have a shocked expression on your face and then close the tab and never think about it again. Can you talk a little bit more about TLS and why that's relevant to an infrastructure operator and just give a little bit more context for the relationship between a service mesh and TLS? Yeah, that's a topic near and dear to my heart. And in fact, I wrote a guide recently. I think it's called like the MTLS, the Kubernetes Engineer's Guide to Mutual TLS or something. So there's a lot to say about TLS. <laughs> I'm going to try and I'm going to try and restrict it to the basics. So you know, in in general, TLS is you know is transport layer security. It's a thing that we use to secure connections, to secure network connections, right? And so you know, the most common example that we're all hopefully familiar with is when you use your web browser and you're talking to a web server and you see a little green lock icon. That means hey, you've got a secure connection. And what does secure mean? Well, it means number one, it's encrypted. Right. But that's not enough. It also means that you have validated the identity on the other side. So you've, you've authenticated who's on the other side. Um, and then there's also a third guarantee around integrity. So those three guarantees um, together mean that you have a secure connection. And that means, among other things, that bad guys in the middle can't snoop your traffic. You know, when you're looking at cat pictures on Reddit, no one can tell what you're doing with some asterisks in there. And no one can kind of impose in the middle. And, and do what's called a man in the middle attack, person in the middle attack, maybe we should say, and change you know, what you're seeing. So you actually get dog pictures back. So that's TLS in, in, in general, right? And then in the world of platform engineering and Kubernetes especially, it turns out that one of the things that TLS is pretty good at is being a really convenient mechanism for ensuring encryption of data in transit between pods in your cluster and for validating identity on both sides. And in this world, we, we modify it slightly. We call it mutual TLS. And we validate both sides of the identity. So my browser talking to the web server, you know, talking to softwareengineeringdaily.com, my browser validates that softwareengineeringdaily.com is who it says it is, but your website doesn't actually care about my browser, right? Like it doesn't care what my identity is. That's handled through other mechanisms. For mutual TLS within a Kubernetes cluster, when service A talks to service B, they're both validating each other's identity. They're establishing a secure connection. They're communicating across you know, that connection. And then you as the operator, as, as kind of the platform owner, you now know that I have secure communication 
And if someone breaks into the cluster and they sniff the network, they're not going to be able to get that data, which is important, you know, especially if you have sensitive data. And there's some other nice guarantees as well. So summarizing that very long essay, <laughs> mutual TLS is a very convenient mechanism for getting encryption of data in transit, especially within the Kubernetes cluster. And a service mesh like Linkerd actually is a very nice way of giving that to you. In fact, we can do it, even though even though TLS is like complicated and, and hard and annoying, we can actually give it to you in the context of a Kubernetes cluster without you having to do a whole lot of work. In fact, we, we enable it by default. So the moment you install Linkerd and you mesh your pods, you actually have MTLS between all meshed pods. Right. And I'm curious, are there other things you could bundle into, I mean, MTLS, getting just getting MTLS as a kind of thrown into the benefits of having a service mesh deployed to your cluster is pretty nice. Is there anything, are there any other features that you're thinking of building to, it could be other nice-to-haves to kind of bundle in with the service mesh functionality? Yeah, so as soon as you have MTLS, one thing that you have is you have identity. You have like this really cool cryptographic proof of identity on either side. And on top of that identity, you can now start building policy. So you can say, well, it's nice that you're service A and you're trying to talk to service B and you want Linkerd to encrypt that connection and give, you know, and authenticate and all that. But is A allowed to talk to B? You know, so we now with the latest release of Linkerd in 2.11, we give you mechanisms where you can control that. You can say A is not allowed to talk to B or only this type of communication is allowed to happen within the cluster. So that's built on top of the same mutual TLS identity. So it's not tied to network identity. There's all sorts of nice reasons why we want to do that. It fits into this model called zero trust security where you know the, the pod itself is, is the enforcement point. So we're not relying on the host. We're not relying on the network. We're not relying on some centralized service. We're doing all of our security enforcement at the most granular level. Um, so that's one big feature. Of course, this is not, there's a lot to security beyond this, you know, and this, this uh, allows you to capture connection level uh, security, but there's also request level things you might want to do and request level policy that MTLS isn't really going to help you with and other classes of things like that. But yeah, policy is a big one for us. Like I said, 2.11 introduced that at the connection level and the 2.12 is probably going to continue that thrust, especially looking at policy around outgoing connections and not just incoming connections. How do you test and verify and validate security features? Oh, it's open source. You just let it out there. And if someone has a big security incident, then you say, whoops, and you fix the bug. Yeah, the system works. Um, <laughs> no, so another hard-hitting question. We do it through a combination of, of things. Number one, Linkerd is a CNCF project. Um, we're fortunate to be a CNCF graduated project, which is kind of the top tier of, of maturity. And one of the things that entitles us to is a CNCF regularly subsidizes audits, security audits by third parties of projects. So we actually are kicking off our, our next audit of Linkerd, I think, in a week. So it's happening happening soon. So that's one thing is we have kind of third-party audits by security professionals. Another thing is we go through a security, uh, it, sorry, we go through a code review process and so no code can get into the system without it being signed off by someone who, who knows what they're doing. Um, and then the third thing is we, and this is going to sound hand-wavy, but we, we think really 
hard about security. We educate ourselves as best we can, and we learn from best practices across the industry. So why are we doing mutual TLS instead of doing something else? Well, because TLS for all of its warts is an industry standard and we can adopt it and there's libraries that we can rely on and we're not like rolling our own, right? So it's, it's a lot of decisions like that. I remember coming by your your office back when you were in uh, you were in San Francisco and you were working on the the dashboard for for Buoyant and I'd love to know more about how usability and user experience has played into what you've built out of the user layer what the actual operator is interfacing with to to configure Linkerd and make updates to it. Yeah, yeah. So user experience in general has been a big, big thrust for us since the very beginning. Students of ancient history will know that Linkerd 1.x was the first version. It's actually very different from 2.x. We started with some Scala libraries uh, that came out of Twitter because we had also been Twitter engineers. It was very, very powerful, but also very, very complex. And when we rewrote things in 2.x circa 2018, starting in, in, in 2018, one of our big goals was to make a system that was simple and that was especially operationally simple because we saw what we saw with 1.x is we saw people who, who bought the value, the value prop of the service mesh and believed in it, but had a lot of trouble implementing it, right? And, th- and that seemed needless. So since that 2018, which is now what, 30, 40 years ago in subjective time, we have been focused on how do we, every time we add a feature, how do we make it simple for the user? What is the UX? What is the operational model you have to have in your head to understand this feature? And as a result, Linkerd is known. I'm very, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that Linkerd is known to be the, the simple service mesh, the one that is actually easy well, quote unquote, easy to operate. Now I say quote unquote easy because the reality is running any software is really hard, right? It's like, especially if it's software that you are on call for, especially if it's software that, you know, other people are relying on and you need to fix problems. It's difficult, no matter how simple we make Linkerd, it's still difficult. And so a lot of that feedback, you know, and and a lot of our creativity and energy over the past year or two around how do we operate Linkerd and how do we help people operate Linkerd at scale and how do we make life really, really simple for them uh, has gone into Buoyant Cloud, which is our SaaS product. And it's Buoyant Cloud, and, and here again, I'm happy that there's like, there's a free tier so you can you can try it out, you know, and you can you don't have to just believe me, but a, a lot of the time and energy that we've put into Buoyant Cloud has been with the idea of like, okay, let's say you have to run Linkerd right? And it's as simple as we can make it, but running software still sucks. How can we ease that burden for you? Can we take on alerting and monitoring for you so you don't have to set that up yourself? Can we take on visibility into the mesh itself so you don't have to build those dashboards? Can we take on things like, you know, expiring certificate alerts? So we give you plenty of warnings so you're never surprised by the fact that you set a certificate up a year ago and it suddenly expired. Can we give you the ability to understand some of the the more sophisticated features like policy, right? Linkerd has a very powerful policy mechanism and with any powerful system, it's it's possible to shoot yourself in the foot. Can we make it so it's very clear what's happening with policy? These are all the ways that our focus on user experience and our focus on simplicity has shifted our product, you know, and has driven this roadmap focused on the end user 
of Linkerd. And as the workloads have gotten more heterogeneous, as you've gotten a wider range of customers, presumably some of them are on legacy de- deployment systems that aren't as standardized as just everybody doing Kubernetes. Has it become more difficult to serve the range of infrastructure use cases with the the same user experience? Well, we've certainly seen an expansion in the sorts of workloads that Linkerd is exposed to. You know, even within the world of Kubernetes, you know, it used to be well, you'd have a deployment and you'd have you know, and you'd have a, a stateful set and you'd have a you know, whatever daemon set. You know, and now there's much more sophisticated things like Argo rollouts and you know these other operators that are starting to come into the system um, that Linkerd has to be aware of. Um, you know, Kubernetes itself has some. I don't want to say warts, but it has some sharp edges when it comes to things like container ordering. And so anyone who's using uh, cron jobs, you know, like we have to do some special stuff for. And then the other thing we've seen a lot of is, is multi-cluster. So that's been a big um, expansion in, in usage. And that has its own special set of concerns, especially as Linkerd tries to mediate, you know, not just on cluster calls, but also calls between clusters, which could potentially be separated across the entire internet. So yeah, that, you know, even in the world of Kubernetes, the sets of workloads that Linkerd is being exposed to is is definitely growing. Um, It's been manageable so far, I think in part because Linkerd, you know, tries to be pretty, uh, pretty basic in how it attaches to the rest of Kubernetes and Kubernetes in turn is pretty good at being a, a platform on which things are built, but it's not, it's not getting easier. I'd love to know about some of the engineering challenges that you've encountered, maybe organizationally or technically, as the company has scaled. You know, it's interesting to hear that the core technology has remained relatively stable. Uh, it's been pretty much the same core technology, but I'm sure there's you know stuff you have to fix day to day or various minor features you have to add, and managing that in tandem with a growing company has its complexities. So I'd, I'd love to know about how you're managing the company and, and how you're kind of dividing up responsibilities. Yeah. So there's technical complexity and then there's like organizational complexity and the two things sometimes have parallels, but <laughs> often don't, you know, especially since organizational complexity involves human beings, which are kind of squishy objects. So, you know, I'd say on the, on the technical side, What's been nice is that kind of the original model for, for Linkerd, at least for 2.x, is one of horizontal scaling. So yes, we've made the proxy itself a lot faster. We've made it able to handle much higher throughputs. We've done a bunch of investment there. And if you look at the benchmarks um, that we publish, um, you'll see the results of that effort. We've we've gone through and like tweaked the the memory allocator, you know, in Rust and things like that, and, and done a, a bunch of experiments to optimize that. But the core design, you know, is is one of horizontal scalability. And so as you add more workloads to the system, well, you get more proxies and the control plane itself can scale up and you can run multiple replicas of the control plane. So we haven't really hit the, uh, on that side, we haven't really hit a, um, a bottleneck. On the organizational side, you know, now I was talking about Buoyant, the company, you know, I think one thing that we have started doing, you know, which we probably should have done a long time ago, is having a really cohesive roadmap between 
Linkerd and Buoyant Cloud. It used to be that the two things were pretty separate. There was like the Linkerd uh, roadmap and it kind of went at its pace and then there's a Buoyant Cloud roadmap and it went at its pace. Nowadays, we've gotten a little smarter and you know, as design and development goes into Linkerd, it's taking feedback from Buoyant Cloud. And obviously uh, as Buoyant Cloud gets uh, developed, we're taking a lot of input and, and feedback from Linkerd. And part of the reason why that's possible is because we run Linkerd ourselves. So Point Cloud itself runs on Linkerd. So we are not just creators, but we're also consumers of dog food. And in fact, we're, it feels like we're swimming in dog food. It's like, uh, yeah, there's a lot of dog food. But that's actually been really helpful, you know, and, and, and having that kind of very direct connection has been gratifying because shipping open source, man, it's like, it's like shipping CDs, you know. It's, you know, you kind of release and then like you put it out there on a Friday and you're like, oh, okay, you know, there it is world. And then you go home and you come back, you know, the next week and people have bug reports or whatever. You don't get very direct feedback and the feedback that you get tends to be pretty negative, right? If you can actually run your service mesh yourself, right? Then you start getting, you get some deep insight. You know, if you are suddenly on call for this thing that you're developing, suddenly very different relationship with your end user. That's been extremely helpful for the project. And I think Linkerd has gotten a lot better because of that. So can you give me more insight into what it's like to run an infrastructure company? I guess I'd love to know if there's some unknown unknowns from from my perspective. Like what keeps you up at night? Is it ability to to sell enough infrastructure software, ability to keep up with competitors? Is it, you know, fear of technical outages? Or do you just feel like everything is... Uh, running hunky-dory at this point oh everything's great it's a it's a self-managing machine i don't even have to do anything i just get to sit around and do podcasts no the reality is it's a it's a real balancing act and it's not just an infrastructure company it's an open source infrastructure company which has its own set of very unique and difficult challenges you know because we have to balance two things we have to balance First of all, the open source community and, and the needs of the community, and we want that to grow and we want Linkerd adopters to be happy and successful, ideally publicly, loudly publicly uh, successful. And then, of course, there's Buoyant, the business, which has to make money and has, you know, that money is coming from Linkerd adopters, but we have to do that in a way that doesn't sour the community. You know, so a lot of that balancing act and, and this is what I spend a lot of my mental energy on and, and, and what we're, we're fleshing out and I think doing a pretty good job on has been navigating that and, and knowing when to invest in community and when to, you know, when to start the sales conversation and when not to. Because you don't, you don't want to try and sell something to someone who doesn't want to buy it, right? That's like, that's not what sales is. That's, that's maybe like used car sales. Right, but that's not what modern software sales is about. Modern software sales is like it's a collaborative and helpful relationship, right? The way if you really want to be successful at this, you know, yes, you're exchanging value, you know, goods for value, but that value has to actually be valuable for you, especially since you know pretty much everything we do is is on a subscription basis. So even if we manage to trick you into doing something for one year, well, if you go away the next year. That's not that's not great. So we have to make you successful. So navigating that complexity between the open source and sales, you know, probably is more 
has been more of a challenge to the company than than just or has more defined the way the company works than just the fact that it's infrastructure software. Although certainly infrastructure means that there's a set of constraints and, and set of you know capabilities that, that the company has to develop. Um, the other thing that's been really helpful for us, I think, is that attitudes towards open source have changed. And I forget whether you and I have talked about this in the past, but I remember when I started in, in open source, which was a long time ago, you know, we were passing around stacks of floppy disks, installing uh, Linux. Yeah, we were installing Slackware version, whatever, zero point something or other. You know, and, and open source was like this, this thing. It was like, we're sticking it to the man. You know, I don't have to buy Windows anymore because I can just install Linux. Ha <laughs> ha, take that, Bill Gates. You know, and, and it was this real, you know, kind of almost anti anti-corporate thing. And over the past, I'm going to give away my age, but, you know, over the past 30 years or whatever it is, something like that, the relationship between the commercial and open source has gotten a lot friendlier, right? And I think today, if you look at the really popular open source projects, you know, there's always a company behind them that is investing in those projects. You know, it's not a nights and weekends thing. It's not volunteer. It's very rare for it to be like this volunteer only effort. Usually there's an economic engine behind the project that's powering the growth of the project. And once you get comfortable with that, you know, it's good for the project, right? I mean, it's like it incentivizes, it gives the project oxygen. You know, you have developers, you have maintainers, you have people who are being paid to make this thing better. And it can be done. It can be done in a way that is not anti-community. Have you been able to get any insight into how people are running their Kubernetes clusters? And just the from their, their macro perspective of seeing all these different Linkerd deployments, is the vast majority like people just doing... EKS clusters or standing up their own Kubernetes on EC2 instances or using VMware? Like, have you seen any any particular trends in how people are deploying and managing their Kubernetes clusters? Yeah, we see a lot because, you know, especially when we have a commercial relationship with you, we, we get as deep as we need to get in order to make sure you're, you're successful with Linkerd. So we do occasionally see people who are running their own Kubernetes, not using a managed Kubernetes. We do occasionally see people who are doing stuff on-prems. Actually, we're seeing more and more of that, but not because it's growing. I think it's just because we're being exposed to a different audience. But the majority of folks that, that we see in the Linkerd, certainly in the open source community, are using a hosted Kubernetes, often on a cloud provider, whether it's Sivo, you know, or, or one of the hyperscale providers. And you know, they have kind of the standard. Kubernetes challenges, like <laughs> how do we actually deploy applications effectively here? And what do the developers need to know? And how do we build up the platform and, and that stuff? And, you know, the actual cloud provider under the hood doesn't actually affect the nature of those problems that much. I'll say one change that we have seen, uh, I mentioned this a little bit before, um, is the shift to multi-cluster. So we saw, you know, we introduced multi-cluster functionality in Linkerd in like 2.9, whatever that was, like that was a long time ago. And then like, it didn't seem to really be used. And I was like, oh man, you know, there's so much buzz about multi-cluster and no one's using it. And now two years later or whatever it is, we see people doing serious multi-cluster deployments. I think people have realized that Kubernetes itself, it's hard to do stuff in a single cluster, right? Like multi-tenancy within a cluster is hard for a variety of reasons. CRDs are, 
you know, the namespaces are non-hierarchical and, and CRDs like are, are cluster-wide and stuff like that. So if you're doing multi-tenancy, well, you got to do it with multiple clusters. Oh, and if you're doing like high availability, well, you probably want things in different zones. Well, that's multi-cluster. Oh, and you know, hey, it turns out two different teams in the company both used Kubernetes at the same time, or we acquired this other company and they were using Kubernetes. Well, now you're multi-cluster. Right? There's all these reasons that, you know, you end up with multiple production Kubernetes clusters, sometimes running the same services, you know, sometimes not, and then having to figure out how to communicate between them, you know, which sometimes is, is trivial. It can be done, you know, right at the network layer. And other times it's basically impossible and has to be, well, not impossible, impossible to do at L3, L4, and you have to do something like Linkerd to do that. So that's been the most noticeable trend, I think. Has there been anything in the evolution of how people are managing their clusters that has surprised you? Is there anything, any any new developments you've seen? Anything that surprised me? Ah, that's an interesting. Let me think about that. Has anything really surprised me? I don't think so. It's been a lot of the same challenges, you know, and, and often the bigger challenges are the organizational ones. Yeah, Kubernetes has a learning curve, but like you can learn it. And once you've learned it, like kind of the operational semantics are clear, hopefully. So no, I don't think I've seen anything. I don't think I've seen anyone do anything really surprising. I've seen the changes that I've seen are things like multi-cluster being like a, you know, kind of a, a bigger pattern. I've certainly seen an increase in sophistication around security. You know, that's, it seems for a long time, it seemed like people were, were struggling primarily to get things to run on Kubernetes and, and you know, security within the cluster was an afterthought. And then suddenly, you know, now we're seeing security teams come in and, and talk about Linkerd and they're like, oh, we need Linkerd because, you know, we have all this shadow IT and there's all these applications running on Kubernetes and we need a way to secure it and to do micro segmentation. I'm like, wow, it's great. You know, I would never have had that conversation two years ago. And we never would have had a security person come in and, 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 and deploy Linkerd for those reasons. So that's been a big shift. But is it surprising? I don't know. Maybe I'm just not easily surprised. Have there been any issues where the service mesh deployment ends up causing latency or or memory consumption issues that prevents a cluster from from operating effectively? You know, there's there's definitely there have been bad cases where like the proxy has gone into some bad state and keeps growing and growing and eventually has to be um, killed. Has it ever gotten to the point where it like takes down an entire cluster? Probably, <laughs> probably. I don't know. But says you know, if we leave outside, if we leave, you know, if we leave aside like bugs and things, typically no. Typically no. I mean the the Linkerd does require resources to run, right? Like you're adding these proxies everywhere. Every call between A and B now has to go through two proxies, not just one, but two proxies. So that's going to add latency, you know, and, you know, and those things are going to consume memory and they consume CPU. But typically the, the real costs are the applications themselves. So usually the biggest source of CPU and memory and, and, and so on is the application. Or if you're running Prometheus and that's what's hogging all the memory in your cluster. Is there any interface between Prometheus and and the service mesh? 
Uh, we expose metrics in a Prometheus compatible fashion. And then we have a Linkerd viz extension you can install that installs a little Prometheus and a little Grafana, you know, and gives you the, the dashboard and stuff like that. So yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's not critical. It's not required for the service mesh to run, but it's been kind of our default time series database, you know, at least for like the little on cluster dashboard that you can get with Linkerd. Just throw it in Prometheus and let Prometheus sort it out. Can you tell me more about your actual infrastructure and how Buoyant Cloud is deployed and architected? Yeah, so, you know, there was a little debate internally when when we first got started. It's like, well, we don't really need microservices and we don't really need Kubernetes. Like, it's going to be a pretty straightforward application. You know, maybe we could just do something normal you know, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, it's like, well, we also really want to ta- dog food Linkerd, which means we're going to have to use Kubernetes and we're going to have to write things as services. And eventually the dog fooding went out. So it's like, it's a little over-engineered, frankly, because we really wanted to have it as a platform for running Linkerd. But, you know, it runs on Kubernetes, comprises multiple services, they speak HTTP and gRPC, they talk to each other, they serve up a web dashboard. I believe we use React on the front end use the actual, you know, the way you connect your cluster to Point Cloud is you add a, there's a Linkerd extension you can add that has a little agent and the agent kind of like talks to Linkerd and reports what it sees back up to the Point Cloud. So it's not, it's not actually that weird or interesting. It's pretty straightforward, at least in the world of, of Kubernetes. But we tried not to try not to make it particularly, we're not actually doing anything that's that crazy. All of our real technical kind of deep tech stuff is in Linkerd itself, you know, and Buoyant Cloud is pretty normal looking Kubernetes application. With one big, actually with one big exception, I take that back because now I realize we actually do have a lot of metrics data. So we have to do some fancy stuff to handle all the metrics data. Because one of the things we do is we take all the, everything that your, uh, that your proxies are doing you know, we report that at home, we get back up to Point Cloud, we host it, we separate it all out by customers so no one's allowed to see anyone else's data and stuff like that. And we give you graphs and you can go back and time windows and you can compare, you know, latency versus rollouts and a bunch of stuff like that. That part of it gets a little more sophisticated. Can you tell me about standing up a successful support program? Because you, you know, you obviously have to service customers that have you know, a, a wide range of issues. Do you have to build particular instrumentation that allows you to assist those people or build internal applications? And yeah, how, how does your support strategy work? Yeah, this is great. So a big part of what we do for our enterprise customers is we help them run Linkerd, right? When we started doing that, we kind of adopted the same model that everyone else does, which is like, oh, it's 24 seven on call. And so, you know, if Linkerd breaks, you call us and you wake us up at three in the morning. And then we have until this time to get back to you. And then we're going to help you like reboot your pods or whatever. And after, after a while of doing that, we were like, wait a minute, if we, if we had a little more insight into what your application is doing and the state of your service mesh, then things would be a lot better. That actually was the genesis of point cloud. So the reason why Point Cloud is a management product is like a Linkerd management product is because not only does it help you operate Linkerd, it also helps us. So if you give us access, we can log into your Point Cloud 
account. We can see the state of your alerts. We can, you know, if, if you have a very fancy support relationship with us, we can we can start calling you and we can start being proactive and we can say, hey, look, Jeff, like you got a certificate that's going to expire next week. Here's what you need to do, X, Y, and Z, you know, and then, then we flip the model around. So instead of it being this, you know, reactive thing, it's like, you know, the emergency room where, okay, you know, wait till you, you break your leg and then you can come to us and we'll help you fix it. We can actually be proactive. We can, we can say, Hey, look, you got to eat your apples and your vegetables and you got to drink milk or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever you're supposed to do to be healthy. Yeah. I'm looking for the days when Linkerd can tell me what to do about my diet. We'll add, we'll add it as an extension. You just have to add the, the proxy into your, in your bloodstream somewhere. You know, attach it to a 5G chip and you should be should be just fine. What's been your experience of going fully remote as a company? Oh gosh, it's been it's been interesting, you know, and I, I don't think we would have done it had the pandemic not kind of forced our hand. But I'm really glad that we did because it's actually been really it's been really good for the company. Even before COVID hit, we had been hiring folks in all sorts of different parts of the world, which I love. I, I love that model for a company. Um, but we were still pretty SF based. And then, you know, once the pandemic was going and and it didn't seem like there was an end in sight, and maybe it still doesn't, we decided to bite the bullet and just be remote first. And it's meant, what has it meant? Well, it's meant that, you know, we're all spending a lot of time on Zoom meetings, <laughs> you know, which it's not, not great, but it's meant that, well, at least for me, it's meant that I actually have a lot more time that I can spend with my family and with my kids which has been gratifying. I can see them throughout the day, even if just for 60 seconds here and five minutes there, you know, they come home from school and I can, I can say hi to them. So that part's been great. And then, you know, for the company, I think one thing that really helped us was a lot of the work that we're doing is asynchronous by nature anyways, right? Like Linkerd, big community project. We've got maintainers who live in all sorts of different parts of the world. And so naturally there's just asynchronous flow. So it didn't actually change stuff that much there. Buoyant Cloud tended to be a lot more synchronous and so we've shifted the model there. So we, you know, we're having like live conversations over, over Zoom or, or whatever it is. And over time, we kind of adapted to the model. I think the hardest, the hardest thing for us was the junior folks. The more junior folks needed more structure, you know, than what was really available. And so they were the ones where we really had to go out of our way to, to address the senior folks who were able to stay engaged and kind of keep their eye on the, on the big picture and, and who knew more about the system that they were okay. And in fact, they kind of appreciated it. So we had to change the way we were handling our, our junior folks. Well, just to wrap up, can you talk a little bit about what you're working on right now across the company? Yeah. So gosh, more of the same, more Linkerd, more Boeing Cloud. You know, one thing that I'm really excited about for the next release of, of Linkerd is client-side policy. So we're finally going to get to the point where we can do things like circuit breaking or egress control. There's fine-grained policy on the roadmap. So we can do policy based on HTTP verbs or GRP, gRPC methods. And uh, a little bit further out from there is mesh expansion, which we talked about pretty heavily in the earlier part of the show. Those are all things that I've been dying to get to for a long time. And we're finally at a really good place for them. You can tell there's like a, there's kind of a security theme that's happening for Linkerd. A lot of our adopters are very, very heavily into like, okay, we need TLS and we need, you know, micro segmentation, all that stuff. And you need to be zero trust. So that's all, 
you know, feeding right into the roadmap. We tend to be pretty customer focused. And then Buoyant Cloud is right along there with it. Like every new Linkerd feature, we're going to give you, make it really easy to manage it and understand the state across clusters and, you know, fit into your GitOps workflow. So it's really, it's just more, 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 and more of the same. Well, William, thank you for coming back on the show. As always, it's a pleasure and nice to get an update on, on Buoyant and Linkerd. Yeah, thanks for having me. And don't forget to go to linkerd.io and get your favorite Kubernetes service mesh.